Okay, it's great to see everyone, and uh, hopefully this will be a year without interruption, School of the Bible. Uh, well, let me, let me just open us in prayer and we can, we can start. Father, we just thank you for the privilege of being able to study your word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And Father, you call us to study your word and to, to know you through it. And so we pray that you would bless our time together, give us understanding and insight, and help us not just to be hearers of the word, but doers. And so, Lord, we, we pray that you would help us in this and in everything that we do, that you would be glorified. Amen. Okay, so. Um, going to try and get through the whole Bible in a year. Uh, this evening I want to just do an introduction to the Old Testament and a little bit about the Bible and some presuppositions about the Bible and then try and get through Genesis 1 to 11. Um, we'll, we'll do a little bit of a break, just a stretch break uh, before we get on to Genesis 1 to 11. And then for next week Genesis 12 to 50, so the rest of the, the book. And then I'll, I'll send through on, on the WhatsApp group sort of a roster, the books that we're going to cover each, each session. So I'd encourage you to try and, and read them. Sometimes it'll be quite a lot of reading. But if, you, if you're able to, please do do that. It'll just help you when you, when you come to class to, be, to ask more informed questions. And that's something I really enjoy. So please, please do ask questions. Don't hesitate. Don't feel shy or anything like that. If it's, if it's a, a rabbit hole, we'll, we'll see whether we go down it or not. Uh, but, uh, but I do enjoy that. So, so yeah, just ask um, anything. Uh, yeah, I think that's most the admin. Okay, so we're going to start with the Old Testament, uh, or the whole Bible. Do you know how many books there are in the Bible? 66. How many in the uh, the Old Testament? 39. 39. So that gives us 27 in the in the New Testament. So 39 books in the Old Testament, and in Bibles that that we use, they they're not in chronological order. So that's why it can can seem quite confusing, especially the Old Testament, because you read things and then you sort of, it's like you're going back again and then you get to the prophets and you don't really know what, where does this fit in. Uh, so hopefully by the end of this, this course you'll, you'll have a better understanding of how it all fits together. So the different sections though, there, I think there's five different sections. The first section, who knows what the first five books of the Bible are called? Pentateuch is, is one word for them. So that's Penta is five. So the first five books in the Bible. What is the Hebrew word? Torah. Uh, which means? Law. Law. Law or instruction. And uh, who wrote or edited those first five books? Moses. Moses. Okay, so Moses. Anyone want to go through the first five books? Genesis is the first one. Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Numbers, 
Deuteronomy. So, Torah, there are five books. The next section is the historical books. So, there are 12 historical books. And as, as the title implies, they just give us the history, the history of, of Israel. Anyone want to go, go for those 12? Joshua, yeah? Joshua, Ruth, 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 Israel, Nehemiah, Esther. Okay. So that, that sort of gives us the history of, of God's people all the way up to, and if you don't understand what I'm talking about now, we'll, we'll get it later, the exile, the Babylonian exile, and then the return from exile, and then with Esther we see that there are some of the Jews who stayed behind. In, well, she was in Susa, but still in the Babylonian uh, empire, still in that side of of the world, or the Assyrian Empire later on. Do you have a question, Amy? No. Oh, I saw your hand up. So. Okay. <laughs> okay, so 12 historical books. Uh, then we have another five, a group of five books called the Wisdom Literature. Anyone want to? Okay, so Proverbs are definitely there. Job. 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 Psalms. Proverbs. Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Yeah, those are the five, five wisdom literature. Uh, then we have another group of five. It's the major prophets. Does anyone know who they are? Which books they are? Prophet <laughs> Okay, everyone get that? <laughs> Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel and Daniel. Okay. So that's the major prophets. And then finally there's twelve minor prophets. So you can see five twelve, five, five, twelve. Anyone will never go at that? Twelve minor prophets. Starts with Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. And it's yeah. Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Okay, so those are the twelve minor prophets. If you were to pick up a, a Hebrew Bible, so an Orthodox Jewish person's Bible. So remember, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So they, their Bible is our Old Testament. That's their, their scriptures. Uh, you would find that they only have 24 books in, in their scripture. But you don't have to worry. It's exactly the same content as, as we have. Uh, the only difference is some of the books they put together, like First and Second Kings becomes one book. Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. That's, that's all they They've done, but it's the same content. <coughs> now, uh, one of the main aims of, of this course 
uh, is that I want us to see that uh, we're going to look at many, many themes, but I want us to see that, that uh, the Lord Jesus is, is primary in, in all the books of the Bible, and especially in the Old Testament. Okay? Uh, many churches either don't preach from the Old Testament, okay, because they say, well, it's old. You know, and it's, we've got the New Testament, we've got the Gospels, it's all about Jesus, so that's all we need. Uh, so they either don't preach from the Old Testament um, because of, for that reason. And then other people preach from the Old Testament without ever getting to Jesus. So it's pretty much the same as if you were to go to a, a Jewish synagogue. It could just be a moral teaching. You know, this is uh, you know, the story of David and Goliath. Is how to, you know, that's all about being brave something like that, or dare to be a Daniel, all of those kind of things. So they're moralistic type sermons that never come to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we don't want to make it about Jesus just because it sounds spiritual. It's actually what, what Jesus himself said. He said it's all about him. Remember, which Bible did Jesus use? The Old Testament. Uh, he didn't have the Gospels or anything like that. He just they, he used the Old Testament. Which Bible did Paul used, he used the Old Testament. The Apostles used the Old Testament. And from the Old Testament, uh, they would preach. And that's where the New Testament comes from. Uh, Augustine said, The new is in the old concealed, and the old is in the new revealed. Okay, so the Old Testament is vitally important and incredibly rich. I remember... The apostles as well, they were saturated in the Old Testament. They were saturated in the Jewish understanding of the Old Testament. So if we want to understand the New Testament properly, at a deeper level, it's critical that we understand the, the Old Testament. But just to show you that, that Jesus taught that the Bible, the Old Testament, was about Him, uh, I just want to tell you what the Jews call the, the, their Bible is the Tanakh. You ever heard of that word before? Tanakh. And it comes from Torah. And then the N is for the Nevaim. And then the CH, it's a K sound, it's a K. It's Ketuvim. So that's how they divide their Bible. They're divided into a group of three. So ours is in five, theirs is in three. The Torah, the law, the instruction, the first five books, so that's the same. The Nevaim, that's the Hebrew word for prophets. Okay, so uh, law, prophets, and then Ketuvim is writings. So, again, they don't have prophets the same way that we have. You know, we have major prophets, minor prophets. They will have many of the historical books under the prophets. Okay. So remember, David was a prophet. So they'll have uh, books like uh, Kings as part of the prophets. Now, this, this threefold distinction was, again, what the Lord Jesus grew up with. Okay. So, turn to Luke 24. Luke chapter 24. 
this is after the resurrection. And Jesus joins his two disciples who are on the road to Emmaus. Remember, they're leaving Jerusalem because they've just seen Jesus crucified. And they think, well, what's the point of carrying on? All our hopes are dashed. Let's just go back home. And so they, they're on their way to Emmaus. And the Lord Jesus comes alongside them, but they don't recognize him. And he says in verse 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, Moses, <coughs> synonym for the law really, okay, the first five books of the Bible, beginning with Moses, and all the prophets, never him, so he mentions those two categories of the Old Testament. He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And notice Jesus said, see it's about me. If you carry on, he ends up talking to the disciples. And he says to them in verse 44, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses... Okay, that category, the first five books. And the prophets. And the Psalms. Now the Psalms are a major part of the writings. So again, it represents the whole of the, the writings as the major component of the writings. Must be fulfilled. Okay, so you see the Lord Jesus said, it's all about me. So uh, I think many Christians sort of think, well, where on earth is Jesus? Where, you know, where is Jesus in the Psalms? Or where... Where is he in all of those stories? Stories about Abraham or David and Goliath and uh, any of those stories. There's interesting stories we've heard from the book of Judges. Where is Jesus in that? Where is Jesus in the story of Samson? And that's, that's not really a great role model. <laughs> that's not a great Sunday school lesson. They don't go into all the details of Samson when they do Sunday school lessons. Um, but we'll see that Jesus, it's all about Jesus and they point to Jesus. And we use these terms shadow and type. Okay, so, um, or typology. So, uh, there are many types in Scripture. So, a type is, is something, it can be a person or a thing uh, that, that uh, highlights an aspect that's fulfilled in Christ. Okay, or a shadow is an easier sort of way of understanding it. If someone's standing around the corner but you just see their shadow, you can sort of make out, oh, there's a person standing there. You can see, okay, they've got their arms out and you can, you can tell something about them just from their shadow, but it's not them. But you know that there is a person there. And so the Old Testament is like that. It's like the, sh the shadow. You can, you can make out something is coming, but it's not the reality yet. The reality is, is Christ. Uh, and that's why Paul, in, especially in Galatians, he's so upset with them because they're going back to the shadows. The sacrificial system. Uh, that's what they want to go back to when the reality has come. Okay, so, an uh, example I've used, those of you who've done the course before, 
will know the example, but before Natalie and I were married, then I had, I had a picture of her. And I had that next to my, my bed. Uh, now, can you imagine on our wedding day, get married and go on honeymoon, and uh, then I say to Natalie, no, no, you're sleeping in the spare room, because I've got this picture of you. Okay? <laughs> it would be ridiculous, wouldn't it? Now, I still have the picture, but I don't really need the picture anymore because you have the, the reality. Okay? And that's what, what, who Christ is. Christ is the, re, the reality. But all of the types and shadows in the Old Testament, they enhance and um, grow, uh, expand our understanding of who Christ is okay? and what He has accomplished. So, they're very, very important. That's why Jesus could say, it's all about me sacrificial system, the temple, the, the accounts, the kings, all of those things, the priests, the prophets, they're all about him. So any questions or comments about that? Does it make sense? Okay. Any other questions or comments about anything else so far? Okay, okay so as we come to Scripture, Let's get my duster. So the presupposition that I'm working from as we come to the Bible is that it is the Word of God. Um, but many people may say that, but so let me unpack that further. Uh, I believe that Scripture as it was given in the original manuscripts was inspired by God and without any error. Okay? And while there have been sort of mistakes in um, the transmission of Scripture, God has promised to preserve His Word so that we're able to say with confidence we have the Word of God. And in fact, the, 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 the textual variances, uh, again, enable us to know which is the correct translation. So they're actually a good thing. So you can ask me afterwards about that. We don't have time to go into it. We might go into it later on in the course. Um, Textual criticism. But basically what I'm saying is that I believe that this is God's Word and it doesn't have any errors uh, and that it's binding on all humanity. So I don't say, I'm not saying it becomes God's Word to me as I read it. So some Christians who believe that it's just a book. But as you experience this book, it can become God's Word to you. If nobody believes in the Bible, it's still God's Word. It remains God's Word, irrelevant of whether people believe it or not, it's, it's God's Word. And for the child of God, it must be their ultimate authority. Okay? Um, so many Christians will say, yes, they believe the Bible is God's Word and it's their ultimate authority. But then, you know, the test, the real test comes when 
scripture clashes with one's lifestyle and what one likes to do. And then you say, well, is it really God's word? You might say, you can say, yes, I believe it's God's word, but am I willing to change when God's word confronts me uh, in an issue? That's the real test to see, do you really believe it's God's word? But it's a presupposition that I'll be using, uh, and I hope it's a presupposition of everyone here, that this is God's word, it is without error, and it's binding upon us, and it's our ultimate authority. And you can say, well, on what basis is it your ultimate authority? Well, Scripture claims to be the word of God, and it claims that it's without error, and that God will preserve it, and that I must submit to it. Okay, so, Scripture is a very challenging book. You can't come to Scripture sort of neutral. We all come with our presuppositions. And Scripture challenges you to humble yourself and then you will receive from God. Humble yourself uh, and obey and God will manifest Himself to you. Okay? So, I believe it's God's Word because it claims to be God's Word. So you can say, well, that's circular reasoning. And you'd be right. It is circular reasoning. So I don't believe the Bible because of archaeology or because of science or because of historical evidence or anything like that. Because the moment you say, well, I believe the Bible is true because of archaeology, archaeology has become your ultimate authority. Do you see that? Okay. Now, it's not to say archaeology and science and all those things cannot vindicate Scripture and support one's faith. But they can't be the ultimate basis for one's faith. So, yeah, in Luke's Gospel, just an example. So, if you say, no, unless archaeology proves the Bible, I won't become a Christian. Uh, well, you may be lost forever. Okay? Uh, there is an account of, in Luke's Gospel, Luke is a great historian. Uh, if you've read Luke's Gospel, you'll know he'll mention governors and all sorts of funny titles and names and places. A lot more detailed than the other Gospels. And there was one of the governors who historians for centuries found no record of this man existing. And so they, of course, people came along and said, well, see, the Bible is not true. Luke says this guy, but there's no record of this guy at all. So the Bible is wrong. So if you had said, well, archaeology proves the Bible is wrong during that period, you would have died and gone to hell. Eventually, I think it's in the last hundred years, they found a plaque, archaeologists found a plaque with this man's name on and the title. And so vindicated scripture. So it's very dangerous to say, well, I'll only believe if this and this and this happened. Uh, that man I used to work for, he said, you know, if they found the ark, we were discussing the ark, and I don't know if you've seen that, uh, always... I don't know if it happens so much nowadays, but National Geographic would run things that, you know, they've got these x-rays, there's something wooden in Mount Ararat and all these things. And he said, can you imagine if they found the ark, how many people would become Christians? And uh, so I said, no, well, uh, well what? So, so let's say they say, we found the ark. And so everyone's, okay, the Bible's true. And then a month later they say, well, we've just discovered it's actually another boat. Well, then what is your, your faith? Is the, you're going to deny Christianity. You're going to deny God because of because of that. It can't be your ultimate authority. So, Scripture is one's is our ultimate authority, and Scripture is self-authenticating. Okay, 
So it authenticates itself. And every ultimate authority is self-authenticating. So if you're at varsity or just having cocktails with friends, whatever, and they say, oh, that's you so silly. Um, your reasoning is circular because you believe the Bible is true because the Bible says it's true. And then ask them what their ultimate authority is. And so let's say they say science or reason. So you say, oh, okay. Prove to me that science is right. How are they going to do that? What are they going to use? Science. Or a person who says reason is my ultimate authority. Well, they're going to try and reason with you that reason is right. It's just as circular. Okay? What is the difference then between the Christian and any other ultimate authority? Well, for the child of God can truly say, well, I didn't come to that position independently. Dependent. So, what do we mean by that? If you are saved, it's not because you were so clever and made a good choice. It's because God, it is because God had mercy upon you. And He made you spiritually alive and you were able to hear His voice. Remember the Lord Jesus said in John's Gospel, My sheep hear my voice. So that's why it's self-authenticating. We know How do you know this is God's word? Because the Lord speaks to us through it. We hear His voice. Okay. Um, uh, at seminary, one of my lecturers, he said, thought it was a good analogy. He said that if someone that you, that's very dear to you, a husband, a wife, a child, a parent, good friend, phones you, how do you know it's them? You pick up the phone, how do you know it's that person? Their voice. Their voice authenticates them. Okay? So, it's the same with Scripture. How do you know it's God's Word? Because God speaks. You hear His voice. So, we say, well, it was God's grace. God revealed Himself to us through His Word. So, I didn't come to this conclusion independently. It wasn't that I made a clever decision. The, the person who denies God's Word has to acknowledge that they came to their decision independently. I decided that reason is, ultimate, reason is ultimate or science is ultimate. Which is a very brave thing to say, a very arrogant thing actually. Because either you're God and you know everything and you're saying, well, science is ultimate. Or you must admit, actually, I only know about 1% of what there is to know. I don't know. You know is it even 1% that you could know of everything? And you're saying, in the 1% of things that I know, this is ultimate. What is the Christian saying? No, I don't know everything, but I know God who knows everything. Okay. So there is a difference between the circular reason. The one is dependent upon God and the one is independent, uh, which is, if they're willing to admit that, that's an important thing for them to think about, to say, well, I, yeah, I've independently chosen to believe that I know everything and reason is ultimate. <laughs> so it's quite a staggering statement to, to think that in, out of whatever percentage it's possible to know of all there is to know, that, that you know enough. Yes. Ok, 
Okay, so this is not the same as just Bible bashing, just believe it because it says so. I hope you see that. This is, this is not denying reason or science or anything like that, that God has given us abilities. This is thought, thoughtful. Why, why is it an ulti, ultimate authority must be self-authenticating? Why do we hold to God's word? Okay, these are, these are all uh, very important things, but these are presuppositions as we, as we go through Scripture that I'm holding to. This is God's word. It's self-authenticating. It is without error. Um, it, it is inspired by God. It is sufficient for life and godliness. So that's, that means it's not sufficient for, you know, you can't go and pitch up at your exam and say, I'm not studying my maths textbook because the Bible's sufficient. <laughs> okay. uh, it's, it's sufficient for life and godliness. It's sufficient if you want to know how to be saved and you want to live a holy life. The Bible is is sufficient. Um, the Bible is not sufficient to you know, fix your broken leg or something like that. But it never claims to be sufficient for that. Um, but, but it is sufficient for the most important issues of, of life. Our eternity and our eternal destination and the meaning of life. All of those, those things. Okay, any questions on that? Or comments? Um, yes? Just, uh, So what I, I meant it as in a medical, you know, if you, were, if you were studying to be a doctor, the Bible is not... If, when, it, when the Bible touches on any field, though, it is true. So when it touches on science or medicine or history or biology or anything, mathematics, it's, it's true. There are some people who try to say, no, the Bible's wrong on all of those things. There's lots of mistakes. Um, but it's true on spiritual things. But to me, that... Firstly, it's never been proven. Okay. Uh, secondly, I'm, I'm hardly going to entrust my life to a God who can't get maths right. You know, <laughs> or history right. Uh, it, it's insane. Um, okay. Now, before we get on to, on to Genesis 1 to 11, I want us to look at what's going to be very, very important as we, as we study God's Word. Okay, so it's called literary criticism. So there are, there are different types of criticism. There's form criticism. So this is not... You don't have to take notes on this unless you want to, unless you run into theologians. Or, <laughs> uh, but it, it, it might be helpful. Uh, there's source criticism and redaction criticism. So... Sort of in the last 150 years, 
higher criticism. So that is the view that the Bible isn't isn't inspired, isn't without error. Okay, and that really grew and flourished in in Germany. Um, so you'll, if you if you do ever read, you'll see all these German theologians, Schleiermacher, and uh, all these all these names like that. Uh, and so they didn't believe the Bible was supernatural. They didn't believe the miracles. All of these all of these things. And so they were studying the Bible and really finding fault with it. And that's also, along with Darwinian evolution, led to the two world wars. Okay. But then they came up with this one thing called form criticism. Now, it doesn't mean everything they came up with is wrong. Um, it's just how you, how you come to it. So, but they came up with form criticism. So that was to try and say, okay, what was the situation when... The Bible, when the Bible was written, or when a book was written, okay, what they called sits im Leben. So Leben's realm. Anyone heard that word, Leben's realm? So that's that's why Hitler invaded Poland. Okay, he wanted Leben's realm, living space. Okay, so it sits im Leben. Sorry, it's really skewed. <laughs> uh, um, it's the situation in life. Okay, what is the situation in life? What are people going through? So it's a good question. What are people going through when they... What are the prophets going through? Uh, now, really, as, as God's people, we say, well, what we can know from that period is really found in Scripture. We don't have access to everything that was going on three, 4,000 years ago, do we? They would come along and they would imagine what was going on and then they would say... This is what happened. So, for example, they would say, the Jews, they were a small group of people um, uh, without, without a, a, a heritage, and so they wanted to create their own mythology. So they said, well, let's, let's imagine we were delivered from Egypt, and these plagues, and the Red Sea parting, okay? And so, sort of like Tolkien with Lord of the Rings. So, you know, Tolkien said he was trying to make a mythology for Great Britain. Okay? That's what Lord of the Rings is. He wasn't trying to say it was true. He was just imagining if there was a mythology for Great Britain, um, what it could look like. But they would come along and say, no, really, that's what the Jews were doing. They made it all up. Because they didn't have a history and they were just a small group of people, so they had to make up their own religion. Okay, and that's where they would go. So, this type of criticism is, is you know, about as helpful as a hole in the head because you, you can't, you're not there, you weren't there. How, how you, we have access to God's Word, that's what we have access to. Source criticism is, is saying, okay, well, the, the people wrote down different things, people re made records, and the, the biblical authors would often use other books. Um, you see this in the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke. They, they're called Synoptic because they're looking at the same thing together. Okay. So if you've read through them, especially if you've read through them in, in quick succession, I'm sure you noticed this sounds just like the other Gospel. And if you actually went and had a look, oftentimes you'd find it is exactly the same, verbatim. So then they say, well, who got it from who? Did Matthew get it from Mark? Or did Mark get it from Matthew? Did they both get it from another source? Now we know there were other sources because Luke says 
the beginning of his gospel, he says what others have written down. So again, it's interesting, but we don't have those other sources, so it's, you, you, you know, it's just hypothetical. Redaction criticism is, is just editing. So like Luke said, he, he, he got different sources, he, he, he found out different oral, he listened to what different people had to say about the life of Jesus, which is form criticism, what, what was going on. He read different sources, and then he compiled it himself. So he edited and put it together. Um, now that shows you how amazing the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is, that He's in control of all of those things. Sometimes I think we, we have a view of inspiration. So what do we mean by inspiration is that each word is breathed out by God. It's, it's, it's without error. So sometimes I think it's, it's almost like you know, Led Zeppelin riding Stairway to Heaven, okay? That the guy's like, mm. <laughs> like oh, wow, you know, this is amazing. Uh, I, was, I, I just felt taken over by the Spirit and, and I just wrote this. And, uh, but it's not like that. Um, it's, it's far more complex and far more beautiful. That's why each, each writer of the Bible is, is different. We can pick up different authors from their different vocabulary, their different grammar, all of their different experiences. The Lord sovereignly superintended all of that. He superintended the writing of other manuscripts that Luke would use. The Holy Spirit was in control of all of that and he brought it together. Okay? So it's far more sophisticated than uh, sort of robotic inspiration. Okay? So these ones are not really helpful. They have their place, but... It can be quite soul-destroying if you have to study it. But one thing that was helpful is literary criticism. So this came about where guys just said, look, just forget all of that. We don't have access to it. Let's just study the Bible as a book, as literature. So if you've, you know, in English class, you study Shakespeare or whatever, like, you don't care if Macbeth really existed or any of those things. You just study to see what were the different devices, the rhetorical devices, the poetry, the soliloquies, what's going on, how is Shakespeare using these devices? Uh, and that's what, what came about with Scripture, and that's been very, very helpful. Now, obviously, we do care. If it didn't really happen, then we're wasting our time. What does Paul say? We're of all men most miserable. Okay? So we're not those who say, no, it's irrelevant whether it happened or not. We're saying it did happen, but let's see what the Bible actually has to say. And the devices, the, the, the literary devices that were used by the authors, which were very, very sophisticated. So, one of the most important that we're going to look at is, is genre analysis. So, what genre is each book or each piece of literature that we're, we're looking at? So, genre is, is the style, and that has to do with the way words are used, the way sentences are used. Now, so an example is poetry. Poetry is different to, to prose. We, we talk about poetic license, don't we? Now, when you read a poem, your mind automatically does that. It automatically understands, I mustn't read this literally. Okay. Um, so, if the person's using very dramatic imagery and figures, you don't sit there going, it's amazing. Or, yeah, Lord of the Rings, you don't sit there going, no ways, there's no ways. 
when was this? <laughs> because you know, you, your brain is very, it's, it's amazing the way God has made us. You, 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 and you could do this, you could be Lord of the Rings, pick up the newspaper, put that down, pick up another book, and your brain switches immediately. You could be reading the newspaper, and you, you read the comics, you read the sports section, you read, and your brain is adjusting all the time. Sadly, somehow, when we come to the Bible, the brain stops working a little bit, okay, often. <laughs> Uh, and, and people read it all the same. Now often it's with a good intention because they want to take the Bible seriously and, and they're saying the Word of God is what it says. But you see they're applying it to, to incorrect things. So a church history example that maybe will, will help, help is uh, at the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther, the Reformer, he... The Roman Catholics had and still have a view of the Lord's Supper called transubstantiation, which means that the, the substance, transubstance, changes. So the bread and the wine actually change as the priest sacrifices the Lord again, actually changes into the literal flesh and blood of Jesus Christ but it maintains its appearance as bread and wine. But as you chew that bread, you're actually, actually chewing on the real flesh of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that came from Greek philosophy. Okay, that's, that was the entrance of Greek philosophy. And of course, once the Roman Catholic Church agrees to it, then it's equivalent to Scripture. So it's very difficult, it's virtually impossible for them to go back on that even though we know that's a load of nonsense. And here's another little nugget, another bonus. That's where Hocus Pocus comes from. Okay. Um, when do we use Hocus Pocus? Talking about? Magic, yeah. Hocus Pocus, magic. Uh, and that comes from them because the priest would say, because they would go behind a screen and do this, and they would say, hoc est corpus man which is Latin for this is my body, but if you said hocus corpus man, it sounded like hocus pocus. Okay? And so everyone, remember many of the, many of the during the Middle Ages, many of the, the congregants were illiterate, and they, they, the priests didn't understand Latin, never mind the people in the pews. So they just, it's like magic. This guy actually sacrifices Jesus, and he turns it into flesh and blood. Uh, eventually the cup was taken away from the the congregants, because it was the blood of Jesus, and if you spilt the cup, there's a whole process, because that's the blood of Jesus. There's a whole way of cleaning the, the wine up. So, but anyway, uh, Luther came along and he said, no, that's not true. But Jesus, remember, Jesus said, this is my body. Eat. This is my flesh. Drink. Okay, so you have these very strong words from the Lord Jesus. So Luther said, no, this is wrong, transubstantiation is wrong, but he, he came up with what he called consubstantiation. So, Jesus' body and blood are with the bread. He, he basically said it's underneath and on top and around. But he, he wouldn't say it changed substance, but basically it's still the same thing. And then in 1529, there was this colloquy in Marburg. And Luther was there and Zwingli. Zwingli was the, uh, another, he was a Swiss reformer. 
and they had 15 points they were trying to see oh do we agree and 14 of the points they agreed because they were thinking let's bring the Swiss and the German Reformation together and we can be stronger and be united and 14 points they agreed but on the 15th point of the Lord's Supper they disagreed and Luther said no this is what happens and Zwingli said no he said the Lord's words are uh, they're not literal he's not talking literally and uh, there's a story that Luther even grabbed a knife and carved into the table hoc est corpus man this is my body okay saying that's what Jesus said Jesus said this is my body so that's what it means so Zwingli said to him Jesus also said I am the door does that mean he's a piece of wood with a little handle on the front okay and um he then said to Luther, he said, that text breaks your neck. Okay. Again, he's notice what Zwingli is doing. He's, it's figurative. Okay. This, this text breaks your neck. Of course, it doesn't literally break Luther's neck, but it's just a way of talking. Uh, and so he was trying to get that across, but Luther refused, and at the end he wouldn't even accept him as a brother. Um, wouldn't shake hands with him. So, very sad. But all because... Luther got his genre analysis wrong. He read it as a literal passage when it's not. Okay. So, it's just a little way of showing it. I think today, most confusion comes with the book of Revelation. That's where you'll see this, this most clearly. People read Revelation as though it's the Ten Commandments, the same style. And, and that, that's going to make it very confusing. So this is very, very important. Uh, sometimes it's not that it's not super important, but it's super helpful. Okay, it gives a richer and deeper understanding to, to what's going on. So there are oh, some wonderful other literary devices that are used in scripture. We're going to look at chiastic structure, um, the way that in, in in much Hebrew literature the main point is in the center. So normally in books that we read. The high point is the end of the book, isn't it? It builds up to a climax. But in, in Hebrew poetry, Hebrew literature, it's often the center is the, is the climax. And so we, we're going to see that. It's going to be helpful. We're going to find different devices when we're reading narratives. So um, many of the stories, especially in the Old Testament, and also in Acts, we'll look at it there. I'm sure you've read them in what has this got to do with me? How does this apply to my life? How does this point to Jesus? What, remember, the narrator often doesn't say anything. He won't say, um, and, this was a, and this was a terrible thing that he did. He just tells the story. And you have to try and figure out, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? What does it mean? How do we find out the meaning of a narrative? Uh, well, we look for words that are repeated. We look for chiastic structure, all of these, these kind of things. So we'll discover that. But one of the big things will be just genre, getting the right genre. And there's the main genres are stories, narratives, poetry, uh, didactic, which is straight teaching, something like the Ten Commandments or, or quite a lot of Paul's teaching. Uh, love one another. Uh, that's just a straight teaching. There's nothing allegorical or figurative in that or Thou shalt not commit murder. There's no, you don't have to you know, stay awake at night wondering what's the deeper meaning to that. <laughs> it's, just, it's just there. Uh, 
preserve life, don't, don't kill, don't take life. Okay, so, um, yeah, and then and there's some other, other types. And apocalyptic, apocalyptic genre. So that's like Revelation and Daniel, um, which is sort of like fantasy type language, dragons and beasts and all those kind of things. Okay, any questions or comments about that? Yeah. What we see in today's society, in churches, where there's you know, this division as to this is how you interpret and this is the new interpretation, is it at this point that that's happening? <coughs> They're misinterpreting the genre? Um, when you say the new interpretation, you mean? Well, I mean, you know, there's debate and... Okay, yes. I So, I'd have to some sort of see some specific examples. So one thing I can say is that our understanding of Scripture has improved over the centuries because we're building on, on the giants who have gone before us. And uh, definitely our understanding of Greek and Hebrew has improved. Um, so there have been great improvements there. So I wouldn't say... But let me say this, but none of the major doctrines have changed. Okay, so, so we talk about the perspicuity of Scripture. Which is quite an ironic word. Um, because perspicuity, it's, it's a crazy word, but it actually just means the clarity of Scripture. So it's like the most unclear word means the clear word, the clearest. <laughs> But if you just think of perspex, perspex, perspicuity, the perspicuity of Scripture. So what that means is, no one will go to hell and say because I wasn't clever enough. You know, I didn't do theology, so that's why I couldn't understand this stuff, and that's why I didn't believe. It's very clear that's that's no excuse at all. The littlest child can understand the gospel. So, what, what the Confessions will say is that the Scriptures are not all equally clear, but the parts that are important are clear. Okay. So, the major doctrines have not changed. So, it's not as though, you know, in the last hundred years we suddenly came up with the Trinity. Well, we never picked that up before. We never realized Jesus was God. That's a new invention. Um, that, that was crystal clear all the way through. We never realized we're saved by grace alone, through faith and that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. We, we always thought we were saved by works. No one could ever say that. It's clearly taught in Scripture. But there are what we call secondary and tertiary doctrines that are less clear. So things like baptism. Should we baptize babies or not? Uh, church ecclesiology, church structure. Should we have con congregational or Episcopalian and bishop or Presbyterian style church government? Which is the most biblical there's debate about that, but they're not reasons to, to disfellowship. Um, so, I think in many, many difficult passages, maybe have become more clear 
through our understanding of genre analysis. Uh, and I think our understanding of eschatology, that's how the, uh, everything is going to work out, uh, has become clearer as we, we, we studied it more. Um, if somebody comes along, so say for example an issue like homosexuality and says, well that's the old interpretation, now we know better. There, there, there is no evidence for that. There, there is no so hermeneutical evidence. Hermeneutics is the tools that we use to, to, un, to, to find out what a text means. It doesn't matter whether it's the Bible or Shakespeare or any book. You, you use the same sort of tools to, to get the, the, the meaning of the author. Uh, yeah, none of those arguments are, are correct. They're not. They're not. Um, it's. It's just the culture. So if you, if somebody says yes, that's the old meaning, but this is the new understanding because we know better, they're wrong on that area. Um, but let's say on a tertiary doctrine, can't think of one right now. Um, so um, often a doctrine, a doctrine is clarified when it's confronted. Okay. That makes sense. So, uh, something like gender now. You know, for 2,000 years, the church is not worried about gender. It was pretty obvious, okay? <laughs> uh, male, female, there are exceptions because we live in a fallen world, hermaphrodites and things like that, that are, they're, they're in, because we live in a fallen world, uh, they, they have to live with that, okay? Uh, but, but in terms of, I can't come along as a man and say I'm now, I'm now a woman, because that, that never happened. But now, the church has been challenged on that. And so now the church is having to think through it and defend it biblically. And so now they're pushed and they're reacting and coming up with statements. Uh, so I think our understanding of things like the gifts, uh, the charismatic movement, that is all sharpened because again, it wasn't a problem. It was sort of fringe cults. It was out there, and and then suddenly it's it's mainstream, and the church didn't know how to react because it never had to deal with it until 1905, uh, and then they were able to to work through it and show the passages and all of that. Uh, so I don't know if I'm answering it. Michael, if 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 I, um, I as I understood Lynn's question. The fact that we, the, the liberal theologians don't get interpretation right, is that linked to the fact that they don't get their genres right? Like, Jonah is a fable, Jonah was never in okay. the stomach of the whale. Um, that's how I understood your no, question. At, at which point is the, is the departure? Yes, I, th I think it's a whole lot of things. Um, if, you, if you're coming with a presupposition the Bible is not true and it has errors, then you, 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 you're going to, and you're denying the supernatural, then that's already, you're going to then have to explain away all the miracles in Scripture. So you're going to start from, from that side. So you, you're not going to be honest with the text already. Um, yeah, I, 
I don't know if, if genre, I'm just trying, I can't think of any examples where people have become serious heretics because they've got genre wrong. Um, but I just think amongst God's people there have been some unhelpful views because of incorrect genre analysis. Okay, well I think just take stand up, stretch legs and then we'll do Genesis.